regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. And today I am on the live with Tristan Berg, who is a system thinker and a data scientist living in Cape Town, South Africa. He studied aeronautical engineering before working as an enterprise software engineer. He worked as architect on AIFIS implementation in Southern Africa, moving into middleware for a large fintech system. He restarted his system modeling and machine learning consulting services through 2014, delivering predictive analytics models in healthcare and other domains. Tristan's skills are as a full-stack data scientist using primarily PySpark to deliver predictive analytics models in a rules engine environment. He backs up his machine learning scale using R and Python to find optimal models and feature sets for use in modeling. His current area of interest is setting up customer next best action processes at scale. Uh, so Tristan, welcome to the show. So so let's start out discussing your uh, college experience. So I saw that you got a BS degree in aeronautical engineering from the University of Witwatersrand in South Africa back in 1994. So how was your undergrad experience? Oh, it was excellent. Um, I took a couple of years extra. Um, I did some sport and, and other extramurals, but um, we had really excellent lecturers and a very up-to-date engineering faculty. And I got to, um, related to my current data science work, um, I, I was quite deeply involved with experiments. So I was a demonstrator for a Pelton wheel experiment for many, for multiple years. Uh, that included really diving down in great depth to the variables at play, um, what the uh, influences of change were on the system and how we could measure that, the limitations of measurement and how that affected um, the experimental outcomes. And then I did went on to do some postgrad work while I was exploring doing a master's and I was an assistant lecturer in aircraft design uh, where I got to work with a really seasoned industry expert. That was fantastic. And then also, also while I was in undergrad, I actually got to learn with one of the luminaries of the United States aircraft industry in feedback and control systems, um, a gentleman by the name of Isaac Horowitz. And he'd actually worked on the F-4 Phantom flight control system. Um, there was an instability at high Mach numbers. And his techniques allowed them to stabilize the aircraft. And that, uh, that made a deep impression on me. That's very uh, impressive. So earlier in your career, you were a technical director at a company called Y2K Tech, where you managed developers working on different tools using um, Visual C++, SQL Server, and Windows Server. Can you talk about your work there? Yes, uh, we were setting up uh, an application 
with a with a wizard type um, user interface to run employers through the new labor law in South Africa that had been implemented around that time. Um, and we worked with a leading labor lawyer and delivered the system in modules. Uh, and that was a learning curve in terms of delivering um, uh, sequential so in incremental delivery. So that was a, a, a learning curve for me there. And then I, I learned quite a bit about sales and pipelines and, and people management, but it really reinforced for me how capable teams inherently can be. Um, and that's something I've never forgotten. So with that experience from 2003 to 2006, you were the owner of IKTCC, in which you were a solution slash enterprise application architect with a strong focus on um, application implementation. So let's talk about some of the projects that you have delivered. Okay. Uh, the IKT stood for Internet Knowledge and Technology. Um, it was quite a, a naive title. Um, yeah, and we, we just had the uh, Y2K bubble and um, a couple of other interesting sort of internet startup uh, influences were starting to be felt in the industry. So we, one of the, the projects we built was a small setup um, running with uh, Justin Java and Tomcat to um, link businesses to one another using email. And the way we differentiated it was we set it up behind quite a, a well, well, a long-built uh, business directory. And we spent quite a bit of time linking business and service categories um, in a kind of a yellow pages approach. But we added a lot of keywords and we, add, we, we tried to make the search capability a really rich and powerful aspect of what we did. Um, but we remained small, a um, number of reasons for that. But yeah, we were a, a small startup mm -hmm. in the landscape. I see. So, so after a few years working at like a small startup, uh, from two thousand and eight to two thousand and ten, you were a software architect at uh, Unisys, which, uh, from my research, is a global IT company that builds high-performance, security-centric solution for very demanding business and governments around the world. So, um, how was your experience at a at a com big company like uh, Unisys? Uh, that, that was excellent for my career, uh, especially because of the software engineering side. And I'd spent a lot of time skilling up and learning about things like the um, full software delivery lifecycle, and in particular, requirements management. And at that time, Unisys was, was really struggling with um, winning bids for large uh, projects for which they hadn't adequately set up their costing. So what was happening is they were winning these bids and then suddenly finding themselves two-thirds of the way through the project having burned through the budget and suddenly finding themselves in penalty spaces and all sorts of other things. So while I was busy building a, a bid there, we were bus busy building a bid for the um, firearm and uh, crime scene evidence management software for the South African Police Service. While I was busy on that bid, um, we were assessed by one of the Unisys bid assessors um, and they, they had a small team uh, of global assessment experts and I was it was a, extremely um, validating. I was invited to join and, and join that group. Um, I didn't get to move around the world or do any good assessments because the project I was working on became stagnant in the contract phase and I'd, I'd moved on. Mm -hmm. but, but it was superb for my engineering career. Um, I worked with some superb architects. Um, there were long um, telecoms with the um, Unisys exec and some very 
reasonably high-powered uh, vice presidents um, in the U.S. while we were busy delivering. We ultimately ended up winning the bid. As I said, it went to contract. So um, a, a very uh, a very solid series of deliveries, which was which was good for me. Up to Unisys, you um, you became a manager at Jumco, which uh, uh-huh. yeah, which I believe is a small IT product and service company uh, with um, strong service in enterprise application design, development, and implementation uh, within South Africa. Um, so, uh, what was some of your responsibility responsibility as a manager here? Um, there were there, there were two main responsibilities. One was obviously to work on billable time for um, the Jumpco clients, but the other was also assisting junior engineers on site. Um, part of the business model was developing young um, IT graduates, particularly in the Java and the IBM toolset space, and um, what Jumpco did was offered a service where um, the graduates were deployed as interns, I suppose you could call it, mm-hmm. and um, for a for a, a, a an intern or graduate type salary, um, Jumpco would then bear the risk of should the person not be able to perform in a in a corporate environment, the they were, were hadn't been employed, and so there wasn't necessarily an issue with um, taking them out of the environment. But on the whole, it turned out to be very successful. Um, and yeah, my role there, my responsibilities there were to, to, to guide folk through the corporate world and then the IBM products. Um, a highlight was um, becoming one of the major holders of IBM certifications in South Africa mm-hmm. around that time. Um, and one of the projects I worked on, we, we got, I think it was eight youngsters certified in IBM BPM. You spent almost more than five years at Jumco. So after leaving you know, the company, you... Uh, spent a year as the director and cloud architect at a company called ICO Analytics, which is another startup uh, and specialized in data and management information, uh, advanced analytics and uh, machine learning. So abilities like probably your, your sort of like most uh, your first official exposure to to this field. Uh, so so yes. so what was some of the interesting project that you have launched during your time at ICO? Oh um. There were there were two main ones. Um, the first one was um, I was I was a help help helped well I helped as a sort of a backup in both cases. I did more of the data engineering and the um, cloud architecture for some of the major deployments, um, and that was more for it was offline. But um, the first model we built was to predict customers' subscription payment behaviors for a very large uh, digital entertainment subscription company here in South Africa, um, and that included their segmentation. Um, and the, the models turned out to be um, start, startlingly accurate. It was it was really eye opening for me as um, the folk I worked with produced models that were um, publishing sort of area under curve accuracies of low eighty percent. Mm-hmm. While um, when we sent messages out to the uh, clients' customers, we had initial um, response rates of sixty percent, but that eventually settled down to thirty percent. Improvement over baseline response rate. Mm-hmm. So, so the model, the models were absolutely st- astonishingly effective, and it, as I said, really opened my eyes to the power of the predictive analytics side. While I was busy working on the data engineering part, mm-hmm. and then um, we built another model to match uh, call center sales personnel to leads. So, which of the call center personnel uh, sold best when given a bunch of leads, and why? 
And what we found was some of the variables that were important uh, were not the variables that were being used intuitively by the call center management. And we, we also got a 30% improvement in sales for those um, for a, a, partial, a subset of, of the allocations that we did. Um, the, the remainder were, were um, messed up because the managers didn't believe that the, the predictive analytics models were accurate because they were, the, the, they were assigning folks in co uh, complete co uh, contravention of their, yeah, their established or traditional business rules. That was an interesting experience. Like when, when you put models into production, your accuracy usually go down, right? But in this case, it seems to me yes. that you, in this scenario, that your, your model is actually quite effective when, when being delivered yes. to, to customer, which is, yeah, I think it's interesting. Yeah, I find it very cool. Um, those models mostly were using R and uh, using the uh, GBM package, using the gradient boosting machine um, techniques. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure how much cross-validation and other robustness met met metrics were applied, mm -hmm. um, but GBM is a very effective ensembling tool. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like uh, I'm, I'm a huge uh, fan of HG Boost. The latest iteration. <laughs> yeah, usually a great baseline model to just start it out and, mm. and usually mm. it, it, keep, it keep that accuracy level very high. After Axio, you, this is like um, back into our introduction, your consulting services, right? Uh, Led by yes. data, uh, which from our, my reading of the website delivers whole loop process design for business operation. Uh, the process includes data-led customer nudge towards the best outcome for customer and businesses. So can you talk about um, this for your career in more detail? Okay. Um, this, this was now, um, I had split from the, the XEO organization, also very small, sort of only a few folks doing some consulting. And um, I then turned, it turned out now I was not only responsible for the data engineering side of things and um, insight support, I was now also responsible for building the actual models. What I did there was um, learned as much as I could about predictive modeling and machine learning while also getting into detailed data managing and processing in R. Essentially, I was teaching myself R from scratch. Um, though I, I have, as I said, um, got reasonably good skills in Java. They're a bit out of date now, but my, my basic programming skills are good. I know what a while loop is and a case statement and so on. So um, I luckily, that it was actually quite lucky. Um, I found a, um, a, a project to work on with clients in the United Kingdom. Um, and they initially asked me to build dashboards for uh, reporting purposes. And, and these had been set up in Excel by a prior management consulting firm. And they'd used ANOVA and a couple of other techniques just to um, validate their uh, sort of insights. So it was descriptive analytics. It wasn't predictive. Busy working on that. The NHS, the nat National Health Service provider that we were working for, went bankrupt. I'm not sure if you're aware of some of the difficulties that um, public health care is being faced with in uh, in the UK. Um, so while I was in between billable clients, I was given a free reign to work on a predictive analytics model. And I, I built one that predicted the duration of hospital stays in the elderly um, in the region that we were working on as we had the data. We, we, we then also tried selling off the, the model to, uh, as, as a, a baseline or as a sort of an initial s s uh, foray into, into the industry. Uh, but that um, proved to be quite tough. And so, um, the contract with them ended, and I'm, um, I moved on. So it was, it was quite challenging, and I, I found I found the anxiety levels were quite high because 
I was busy saying, sure, I can do a predictive model, knowing that the tutorials existed, that mm -hmm. the um, I had the data, and I, I had worked reasonably closely with the, the predictive modelers on previous work. Mm -hmm. But now I was busy um, bearing full responsibility for building the models. And of course, there are a couple of um, two-day noob or very newbie mistakes that I was making that I eventually figured out. Um, but I found that sticking to first principles really helped. Um, and, and that's something you, you, you ask, um, you, you, you focus, you ask me to focus on that. And we will, I think we'll get to that in another question, which is how did my um, yeah. engineering background help? The okay. setting up of an experimental design is, is something fundamental. And, and if you get that right, you, you, you have a really good platform to stand on. So I made sure to keep those principles in mind. And I, I didn't leap out at um, and clutch at you know, the first sort of brilliant model or excellent data or excellent output that I found. And I was reasonably methodical with what I did and found a, caught a few errors that way. But then after checking it, I, I did actually find a model that worked quite well. Yeah, I uh, absolutely agree. First principle thinking is, is, is quite underrated. I listened to your talk called Predictive Analytics in Action, Real Business Results in South Africa back in 2015. Uh, and you propose this framework to predictive analytics called question, think, test, analyze. So can you discuss this framework with, uh, with a concrete example? With pleasure. Um, the talk that I gave was, um, that talked about the um, digital subscriber customer-based work that we did in Exio. But um, I'd like to chat about the QTTA sequence. It's, 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 a, it's reasonably informal. It's just a codification of my techniques and sort of the, the, um, the process I found myself repeating over and over again when looking at tutorials and looking at new data sets. And I'll, I'll, uh, I'll walk you through it with the, um, the healthcare, the, the hospital bed state test that I discussed earlier. Mm -hmm. The question part for me is um, it's... It's not really, you couldn't really call it the linchpin, but it's certainly very important. And I like going back to the questions that I was asking. Because I, what I find is um, as I learn more and as I've done a bit of a think and then done some testing on the data and analyzing the results, I get a, I, um, I find myself changing the question. And uh, each one of these elements interrelates with the others. So going back to questions in the beginning and keeping a record of the questions that I've asked as I've gone through learning about the problem has been very interesting for me as well. Um, so for example, the, um, the health, in the healthcare side of things, I was um, initially, I was all keen because I was, I was, come on guys, we, we can build a predictive model and be really cool, which is part of the, you know, the fun aspect of being a data scientist. But on the other hand, I didn't really know the environment all that well. So I said, how about we build a model to predict whether or not someone will be admitted? And the folks were like, well, cool, have a go at that in the, uh, in the data set. And I dived into the data set, had a look and realized um, that I did have that, but the ratios were interesting in terms of um, the folks who, who were admitted and who weren't admitted. And also at the time, we had been working on um, an advantageous system for the folks running the hospital. How could they cut costs while not compromising their service levels? And then I said, well, okay, so the question, how can, can we predict likelihoods to be admitted? Would that be useful? And, I, and, and then asking that question led me to go, well, how do I know it's useful? Well, obviously, I know costs involved. And the data set I had didn't have any costs involved in, in, the, in the running of a hospital. 
So then I consulted with the business analysts who'd worked on the project for quite a while, and immediately their answer was um, the massive cost driver in hospital management is number of bed days occupied by um, the patient, the inpatients. So that then shifted what I was doing quite strongly. And so instead of considering likelihood to be admitted, which I'd been chatting about before, and which required all sorts of networks into um, care of the elderly so that they preempted or prevented falls or injuries that resulted in hospitalization, it shifted very, very much more inside the hospital. So asking the question led me to ask another question, led me to ask the right question. Mm-hmm. So asking the question, what can I, can I predict X, led to the questioning, would it be worthwhile to predict X? And what would the outcomes be that would be valuable for the business? Because those are the ones that they'd implement. And that led to predicting the number of bed days. And so um, there's a think and a test and an analyze phase that can be as short, as long as you like. And the thinking, the testing, the analyzing generally tend to be interrelated. And immediately you start to find things out like, um, oh, my outcome column of gender Look, or my, my feature column of gender looked like we were being really valuable, but there's 60 or 70% nulls. Oh, okay. Well, that's going to be discarded. So I'm going to have to shift my modeling to possibly something with a less of, of a demographic reliance and so on. Um, and so I think back to sort of the sequence thing. I mean, the, the, the think, test, and analyze inform one another, as I said. And this brings me very strongly to that initial first principles stuff which I got from my engineering degree, which is uh, the round-trip engineering of the process. Mm-hmm. And so um, it, it really it really meant that I was taking care with linking them together while bearing the questions in mind. And then also not being afraid to ask new questions. Um, I find asking new questions can add to your feature set. It can, um, it can add to the power of your models by constraining certain feature sets that you use. So I just thought it would be a really good idea to codify it, you know. Yeah, sure. thanks for sharing that example. And you might have already mentioned this, but uh, you were talking about, you know, as a, as a director, you kind of can tell, you know, other, other people to do the analytics, but but then now you have to actually doing the, the, the data sense stuff as by yourself, right? So I saw that yeah. you, you were holding a director title and then you, you led a transition into a data scientist title led by data, so both from a learning and from an um, operational perspective. So how, how was this transition like for you? Um, the, the transition was, was relatively stressful. So after the, um, the, the, while the contract work was busy winding up in the UK, I needed to look for new sales pipelines. And I found myself um, struggling a bit with that. Um, I was invited to share co-working space at one of the major banks technology sort of accelerator and startup facilities in in the uh, in the city so I was spending quite a bit of time there and getting lots of really interesting leads but um, my uh, East famine <laughs> contract resources were starting to run dry so I had to I really needed to find some good work um, and what I found was um, one of the major learning uh, factors there was not having enough parallel projects in the pipeline that's mm-hmm. the, the the classic take on too much work thing um, I was quite sort of um, cognizant of the fact that I was still learning, and so thing I, I, I wouldn't liked have liked to have taken on really you know deadline intensive work. So that was the one hand I was considering, but on the other was um, you know I needed the work, yeah. and at that time part of the stress was um, 
busy negotiating some contract work to design insurance products. Um, a large uh, vehicle finance and vehicle insurance insurer were very keen on building um, an insurance model using a lot more AI and, and, and machine learning uh, data-driven decision-making. So um, moving to, to faster decision times and cycles and so on. And that looked very, very promising, but unfortunately fell through, like some of the sales pipelines I wanted to do. And that I found myself scrabbling around for work and that's when I worked to a bit and I found it actually it, it, it led to me taking up permanent work at a social media analytics company. And you probably go over this already but uh, from your opinion like what are the top um, the top three transfer skill from being a cloud architect to being a data scientist? Um, my, my top three transferable skills are definitely an awareness of the tool set Mm -hmm. So um, I made sure to keep, to figure out what was going on on the scaling side of things. So primarily tool sets. So I, I got to learn about Hadoop, EMR, Yarn, and Spark very, very in, in quite a great detail. And um, so the tool set, I, I now work in Databricks because of my knowledge of um, Spark and how the folks wrote it. That's, a, that's really informed choosing a really good tool set. And um, I've, I've found that that tool set is, has been magnificent in serving its, its its purpose. So knowing which tool sets to look at, um, and I've, I've often found myself dodging many bullets that a lot of the um, large corporates are being hit by as they do their cloud notifications and um, the, the cloud, what's it, migrations, and, and their movement of all their on-site data to their, um, their cloud repositories. Uh, one of those, for example, is I know never to use... Um, table structures for your very, very large high volume data as an ingestion step. And one of my, uh, one of the, the folks I work with um, have used the Azure table structure, which is fantastic for large structures, but in a much more off offline type of uh, uh, position. And what I'm finding is getting data out of that is proving to be remarkably slow and clunky and just really difficult to work with, where um, exporting your data as a CSV and, and loading it into an Azure blog is a much better outcome for um, for working at scale on um, you know, sort of exploratory uh, data science. So that that one was one. Uh, so the tool set is one. Um, yeah, cloud architect. Um, I think that the other skills I have, I've just, but they're not necessarily my cloud architect skills. Mm -hmm. Actually, no. Let me talk about that. Um, how things hang together in an architecture. So being a cloud architect has led me to know what I need to configure in order to get the tool sets and the resources to hang together. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that's quite a key thing in terms of um, uh, relating to just general data science learning is um, the principles can guide you in what it is you're looking for. And one of the things I'm really enjoying about Google is you can put some pretty comprehensive and complicated uh, test questions uh, or query questions in your search, um, in your search bar. And Google will come up with some very interesting outcomes. So um, I find myself being well served by that, you know, zeroing in on the right Stack Overflow or the right uh, white paper or the, or the right uh, tutorial or step-by-step um, -step instruction that the, uh, the vendors or the, the open source project uh, provide online. So um, I think just having that architecture mindset has been helpful. It, and it relates to the, the think, test, analyze, um, all informing one another. Um, Don't be afraid to step into a world which is completely unknown and just pick it out. Uh, pick off each concept one by one. So, um, for example, 
we know that we have to bring large amounts of data from a one Hadoop implementation to another. Um, and I found myself running high-spark queries in a session on the one Hadoop cluster to write to the other um, Hadoop cluster. And that actually, I, I knew, I, 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 over, I happened to overwhelm a bandwidth um, setup there. So there was a configuration issue. But, but I was able to set up those tasks and get them working um, because I knew of the intentions behind the architecture of the tool sets. So I know where I'm quite happily, happy to use Hadoop straight off spinning hard drives, where uh, in other situations I'm, I'm very sure that I'd much, much rather use, um, I'd much, much rather use you know, Spark streaming using um, blob text files mm -hmm. in, the, uh, in the cloud. So the architecture informed that. Uh, and then the third top transferable skill from cloud architect to being a data scientist, I found, can I answer with one that's not transferable really immediately? Is I'm good at, I was good at Java as a cloud architect. Mm -hmm. um, and I picked up XML just, not by accident, but I, I picked up XML and, um, and, and did what I needed to do. Um, Moving to um, data science, um, I needed to really learn the languages that addressed the very specific, very niched requirements of the tool sets. Mm -hmm. So I'm talking now about R and Python in particular. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, learning R proved to be really valuable because um, a lot of the libraries in sklearn, for example, have, have um, worked off or leveraged off some of the libraries in R mm -hmm. and then added uh, a few of their own wrinkles to do with OO and um, the, the sort of the, the more, more leveraging the power of Python, the language itself. So my non-transferable skill was Java itself, but my and my first principles programming did help. Mm -hmm. um, but I really needed to um, that in that third phase of really getting the best out of my machine learning and predictive analytics models. The engineering background helped a lot. Uh, in fact, one of the things I'd recommend is take a course on experimental design if your undergrad or your college hasn't your college uh, well, your, your college course didn't teach you that T take a course in experiment design or at least read up on it um, and in fact um, learn about learning there you learn about all the basics of machine learning uh, errors um, measurement error um, sampling I mean all those kinds of uh, real fundamentals those I drew on from my my engineering I see. Thank, thanks for sharing those advice. I think definitely there's a shortage of resources on, on data engineering and with your experience using all those big data and cloud computing tools, I think it's, it's really helpful for for people to, to kind of have certain awareness about the importance of, of um, being exposure to, to those technologies when deploying your models into production, right? Um, yes, mm -hmm. um, exactly. In, in fact, thanks for that. Um, Deploying into production is is absolutely where the rubber meets the road, and where all of your assumptions and the little light that you could show on you know your own internal errors in what you're doing meet they meet they the the rubber meets the road very very much when you deploy to production, um, and and that's something I'm not seeing. Um, it's it's addressed if you go after it, uh, but it's not addressed very specifically in terms of um, and it's a whole added almost discipline on top of deploying um, predictive analytics or machine learning data science software. Normal software, you don't want to be measuring anything because 
there's this complete, if you don't have any errors or bugs or failures in production, you've done your job correctly. But uh, with data science software, as you know, you're measuring like mad as part of your production and deployment. So um, that that's very different. Great point. I see. So you mentioned um, about the need to learn R and Python when you transition full-time to data science. Um, so I'm just curious, what are some of the best uh, courses and online resources that you use to, to, to study uh, for, for, to, for those uh, language and uh, to become a data scientist? Uh, well, interestingly here, I, um, I, I, what I did was, the principle I worked from was having worked at Ixio, I knew that uh, GBM and R could deliver some very powerful predictive models. So I, I chose to focus very strongly on delivering my initial um, hospital bed day predictive uh, model using R and GBM. And so my scope of work, I suppose, was wonderfully constrained. I knew if I tried anything else, I'd just become um, swamped by the vast amount of potential techniques and libraries and models and all sorts that were out there. So I, I, I chose in my initial forays to just, have, I had my problem to solve, predict the number of days folks would stay in hospital given their diagnostic codes. And I built that model in, in uh, GBM using R, uh, and it, it took me a while. I mean, I, had some, I, I found some sticky problems. So here I am thinking GBM can do everything and build everything, and I found um, it has a limit of 1028. Um, categories in uh, in any categorical column, uh, and suddenly I was faced with now having to go off sideways in R and figure out all sorts of ways to um, find the counts, address the records, filter them out. That that was a very interesting three day exercise, which left me quite stressed, I must say, because mm -hmm. I was getting no closer to building a model, and I hadn't yet gotten the model to work. And here I was breaking it in ways that I didn't realize I needed to figure out, uh, and that's the whole. One of, another reason for me saying get in and jump in and, and run tutorials and try and do things like Kaggle competitions and I'll chat later about my, my recommendations, but doing the actuality of coding and, and solving a problem that you don't necessarily have a worked solution for really, really gives you insights into what's going on. Um, and then one of my engineering things is I knew there was an answer out there and, and it was okay if I didn't find it on my first, second, third or even seventh search attempt through Google or Stack Overflow or in the Tuts. And so um, so the best online resource is pretty much Google slash Stack Overflow. But mm -hmm. um, Google was my friend. Um, sure. And I uh, you leveraged my, my basic programming and some of my engineering skills looking at uh, which aspects of a an answer would work in my situation and then trying them. And if they didn't work, hey, you had to repeat and repeat and repeat. So I think persistence is also proved to be valuable there. Um, and then the, op the open source world is just remarkable. Um, yes, some of the documentation is better than others, but the R tutorials and the worked examples were absolutely splendid. I, I, I pretty much found what I needed to there. So that was great. Um, and then um, while I was busy working with Ixio and um, moving on to Led by Data, um, I gave that talk, as you said, you, you, you watched that talk. Um, and at the talk, um, we were lucky enough to uh, meet Dr. Eric Siegel, who's the founder of Predictive Analytics World. Mm -hmm. And he's written a book. It's called Predictive Analytics. Um, and in it, he, he, he goes into great um, and rigorous detail 
in well-written language on becoming a data scientist and running data scientist type uh, processes and roles. Um, and so I found that that quite valuable. Um, and then just um, subscribe to a couple of, in your, what I found is in my journeys through the internet, there are a couple of resources that have just, there just seem to be a couple of things that are quite good. Um, one of them that I've found is uh, Machine Learning Mastery by, um, I think it's Jason Brownlee. He's from Australia or New Zealand. I'm not sure which. He's got a website called machinelearningmastery.com, and he, he writes a couple of books, and they're reasonably good value, and they've helped. Um, and then um, Analytics Video is pretty good. I don't know if you know it. Uh, and what I do is I subscribe to these websites, and they send me their weekly or daily um, analytics updates and you know um, in, in, uh, emails of interest. And I just keep myself abreast of those kinds of things. And then on Twitter, there's quite a few nice uh, nice resources to follow. Um, data Science Central is a good one. Um, there, and then there's a couple of actual data scientists doing work. Um, I recommend following Andrew Ng, the head of Google's, he was head of Google um, AI. Um, gosh, there's a lot. Um, what I can do is I can provide you with a, a really detailed list or sort of a brain dump of, of the resources that I'm looking at there. But, but pretty much... Um, yeah, sklearn.org, um, that's also great. The tutorials and doc documentation, I think, have contributed to, to success there. Um, and sometimes the R packages can be very dry, and that's why running them is really, really good a good idea. Um, but yeah, sklearn.org and its tutorials are quite good. Um, and then, um, interestingly enough, recently I've been diving into the SciPy and NumPy um, libraries, and they've got some good tutorials and, and uh, backup um, bits of information. Another really good resource is the, the Python cookbook on GitHub. That's a great one. Um, and then on your cloud provider of choice, I mean, the list goes on. Um, the, the cloud providers, AWS and Azure in particular, are, are doing their best to make uh, life very easy at scale. Um, there are some issues um, in terms of finding optimal models and doing some very sexy things. But on, on the whole, for example, um, Azure ML and a lot of the AWS services are pretty good. Um, I haven't jumped into them in great depth because I haven't had clients needing them. But um, right now, I'm, I'm probably going to start looking at Azure ML. Um, so, yeah, look to your cloud provider because they're in business to make your life better for you as a data scientist. And they want you to run all your heavy jobs and your, your, your big, big models and your giant data sets in their cloud, so it's in their best interests to make things good for us. Yeah, I see. Yeah, thanks for sharing that very um, comprehensive list of um, <laughs> resources that, that you mentioned. Um, was there any uh, data science project that you're kind of currently working on at the moment? Yes, um, though not for Led by Data, because again, I've moved into a permanent uh, permanent employment oh, role I see. at IA Holdings. Um, and then another model that I did, um, I was also permanently employed at Brands Eye. It was a, a company doing, um, they call it social listening. It's very interesting, some interesting techniques going on there. Um, and one of the things I've just learned, I think I mentioned it earlier, the, uh, oh no, I don't think I mentioned it earlier. Um, I, while I was building a uh, teaching deck for hypothesis testing, I came across um, random um, sort of stochastic sampling event um, handling techniques using um, inference testing to to look at underlying influences in time series. And I wish I'd known that about, about that earlier. But uh, isn't that how it sometimes works? 
Um, but what Dead by Data has been is it's my sort of consulting arm and my sort of private space to put down some of my thoughts. Um, I have been quite stagnant on the blog, but um, it, it's just something I've, I've, I've kept going. I, I like to think that what I'm doing is reasonably independent of what my employers are asking. Mm-hmm. So right now, for example, um, I'm, I'm at IO, I'm delivering lots of um, data engineering tasks and setting mm-hmm. up analytical processes on top of very big data sets rather than just rather than also doing predictive modeling, which I have done earlier. But um, another one I did at uh, Led by Data slash while I was at Brand's Eye was uh, I built a learning outcome prediction model um, because um, Brand's Eye is busy um, assessing a number of, of uh, folk in a, in a sort of uh, an auxiliary role as a, um, a group to help out uh, assess uh, internal data sets and, and other things. And one of the things we wanted to look at, um, and oh, and also, you know, AI and, the, and the, the engines inside, the software engines, we wanted to, to predict whether or not they'd be good at um, learning and passing tests. And I built a model that predicted uh, test outcomes based on uh, learning, uh, not test outcomes, beg your pardon, uh, performance of folk after being run through a number of courses. And uh, that was an interesting one. And again, the collaborations proved to be more valuable than um, many of the insights I came up with. So, for example, one of them there was um, in a time series of events, split the time series of events into a first half and a second half, um, and then use those two as separate state variables. So what was the person's um, performance or test score in the first half of their training and when they were taking uh in learning quizzes, and what was their performance in the second half. Um, and, and that is a way of codifying, in a discrete, event-driven world, it's a way of codifying a trend in that in that learner. Did that person improve in their test scores from first half to second half? And did that have a bearing on, on downstream outcomes? Um, and that's very much part of the TTA side of UTTA. So you, you're thinking while you're busy at testing and analyzing, um, and always holding that thread running through the question, the thinking, the testing, the analyzing as a circle, as a round trip. Um, and that, that, was a lot, that was a lot of fun. And then I also did some small natural language processing work modules. Um, I was looking at, yes, word counts, and I was also looking at word to vec um, And I, I, mo- I moved on from brands a little earlier than I would have liked, um, but my personal circumstances dictated it. Um, I, I was just able to find a, a much better paying job. <laughs> And at the time, that, that was obviously uh, a priority. But yeah, natural language processing is, again, also it's one, of my, one of my fun aspects of machine learning and AI. Great. So in the middle of 2017, you uh, you learned a role as a senior data scientist at Direct Access, which is a big financial service organiz- organization in South Africa. Uh, for the audience who are not familiar with Direct Access, can you give a brief background about the company um, and as well as the reasons why you decided to work there. Okay. Um, Direct Access is a short-term loan uh, provider. So um, they typically provide um, loans in the amounts of uh, ten to 15,000 um, South African Rand up to maximum around 100 to 120,000 South African Rand. Uh, generally, as, as I said, short-term. So it's, it's for things like... Um, school fees or uh, an addition to a home, those kinds of things. Um, Just to give you an idea, that's probably around uh, $1,000 to $1,500 to about $10,000 loans. 
Um, they were bought by First National Bank just before I started. And while I was there, the whole transition to being a full subsidiary of the bank uh, was, was implemented. Um, and why I decided to work there was a, a spectacular and most comprehensive interview process. Um, I was casting around for, um, as I said, um, better paying work. And um, one of the things that made um, that direct access stand out, and I was lucky enough to get another offer from another bank, but they that would have involved huge amounts of travel. So on a very mundane level, one of the reasons I chose to work at direct access was it was only a couple of miles from my house rather than 30 miles or 20 miles from my house. The other reason was, as I said, this very comprehensive interview where um, the interviewer, who was an actuary, asked me, based on these and these and these data sets, how would you approach running predictive models? What techniques would you use? What would you look out for? Those kinds of things. And it was a series of emails uh, as a dialogue, um, and it, it was remarkable. Um, I felt my knowledge was being properly um, queried and uh, explored. Uh, I felt that um, what I'd achieved was being uh, being recognized and that um, should, because I was being asked these questions, I would be given the most fantastic tasks and jobs to work on. And so that's why I decided to work there. Yeah, and uh, I saw on the profile that uh, at Direct Access, you were responsible for delivering end-to-end um, -end predictive analytics solution serving financial services products. Um, can you uh, yeah, elaborate more on that? Oh, yes. Um, so we were busy looking at um, augmenting the sales and leads process. So Direct Access also operates a big call center, and they wanted to look at ways in which we could link um, um, sales of products to leads and um, predictive outcomes using leads as input. So uh, what would the likelihood of lead X be to um, sign up for a loan at the end of a sales process? Um, and it was a, there were a large number of sales pipeline um, standard outcomes happening. Um, quite a large number of, of calls needed to be made to, to result in generating a certain number of sales. Um, so the, uh, uh, what I did was I built the models using uh, Python and Scikit-Learn. Um, we initially struggled because running on laptops and getting out into the cloud was extremely difficult because we have some very, very tough, rightly so, uh, data privacy laws here in South Africa. So um, being a, a financial service provider and also a banking, uh, a wholly owned entity, bank owned, uh, we, decide, we, we, we really didn't. Um, have the option of going into the cloud. So on the plus side, I learned about the Dask library in Python, which is um, how you parallelize things locally. And also using um, file windows, you can process and join very large data sets to one another. Just use, we built the models using, also we have access to some reasonably fine-grained credit data on, on the potential leads. And um, we are... Uh, so we were subject to the delivery of large numbers of lead creditworthy data and creditworthiness data. And then we, I fed these into um, a number of models. Um, and one of the things I learned while I was at Direct Access was ways to assess model performance that go above and beyond the AUC and the confusion matrix uh, and things like the log loss score and so, so on. Um, so we were um, subject to some pretty pretty strict 
model performance um, rigor criteria. And one of those is a calibration test. So um, that does exist in scikit-learn, but um, they asked us to do even more than what was offered uh, um, in the scikit-learn packages. And thank goodness for open source, we were able to modify our code, use the uh, coding mechanisms that are available in the open source code, and enhance that for our purposes. So we started to look at things like um, calibration curves with specified number of um, data point bins so that we could get a really, really strong feeling for how the models were ranking. And interestingly there, um, you mentioned baseline models earlier, James. Um, we found that the logistic regression model with tuned uh, features using p-values. So once you run your logistic regression, your initial logistic regression model on a large number of features, you can, you can prune using p-values. Um, and that required R because out the box, R delivers p-values in your logistic regression model. Uh, interestingly, interestingly enough, scikit-learn didn't, because obviously that would be a NumP or a SciPy implementation. So I hopped out of scikit-learn into R to run the logistic regression models so that I could get the p-values and do the tuning there. And we found that once we found models that calibrated really, really well, they tended to be the logistic regression ones. They actually beat out the, um, the ensemble types. Um, one of the reasons for that was um, I was using a library called MLExtend, to do um, to run a technique called sequential forward selection on features, which proved to be a very good technique. Unfortunately, it's very computationally intensive. Mm -hmm. So, for example, on um, thousand variables, I found uh, running on about ten to fifteen thousand records, um, a proper sequential forward search on finding the best features to just find the top 20 features took around two days on a standard modern laptop with uh, 16 gigs of RAM. <laughs> that was an interesting, uh, an interesting to and fro on uh, what we needed and what we had. Um, some other techniques I learned there were, um, we, we, we looked at building the models using, um, uh, where was I? using the, the tuning. So we'd um, check the model's performance prior to and after um, cert selecting certain features. And then once we had that, we then also explored uh, deployment. Um, and we were working with a vendor-specific a vendor specific, um, business rules engine. And I won't go into details here because we hit the environment just prior to an upgrade and a, a, what's the word, an enhancement by the vendor. So getting to the end of deploying our models into the business rules engine proved to be remarkably delayed. Uh, it took months and months to get our data in there. So um, yeah, these are just some of the uh, some of the uh, problems that we encountered in building these end-to-end -end models. Awesome, awesome. Thanks for sharing those um, those that of your experience. So so given your experience in working at Direct Access, um, how do you think that um, machine learning and data science can help improve the personal lending and insurance processes for the low-risk mass middle market? Um, such an interesting question, James. Thanks for asking it. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll go and I'll, I'll do um, one way that the personal lending and one way that the insurance processes could be improved. Um, one of the things I did find is working in South Africa, um, and I, I don't know if you're aware, we have a, a very risk-averse banking industry and lending industry. So um, the rules for creditworthiness as well as the criteria that we applied um, using things like actuarially generated, um, um, what are they called? Um, uh, 
it's a it's a table based table based method. Um, they, they called it scorecard. So a credit scorecard for client base was using some very conservative and very strong and rigorous uh, criteria for assigning someone a, a credit score worthy of being offered a loan. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I found is, in particular here in South Africa, is if the folks don't have a credit score or a run of credit, uh, um, a line of credit, or or have taken haven't taken up any credit products, they generally tend never to be given them. So what you find is um, a number of the rules in play were excluding a large number of this low risk mass middle market clientele. And what what um, I would think is using machine learning and um, Possibly AI, but using machine learning and even deep learning on on a lot of the uh, financial transaction data, a lot of the uh, information available, um, I believe we could build models that would um, be able to uh, find folks with likelihoods to repay their loans, even though the normal, quite strict rules would have rejected them. Um, and by the same token, that would then also improve the. Um, the, the default rates and the bad debt of the current customer base. So, uh, on, on the other aspect, it would also improve the, the current credit worthiness uh, skills uh, scores because um, you can look at much bigger data sets and you can start building and you can get through model optimization much faster. Um, and in the insurance process, um, one of the things I'm quite interested in is event based um, insurance using possible IoT input. A good example here would would be um, a parent of a teenager is is starting to let the teenager learn to drive in their car. Would would an insurer find it valuable to have sort of driving dynamics coming through in the in the uh, in, in the IoT stream? Um, and it could also be things like, oh, a new driver is driving your car. Would you like to have your premium? What if the uh, the, the insurer says, hi, uh, we noticed that you're teaching a teenager to drive. Um, we think this is a great thing. Um, how about uh, we dynamically assign a slightly higher premium when the uh, teenager is driving because they are a slightly um, higher risk for accident, but we'll revert back to your normal premium when we know that they're not driving. How would you like that? So. Um, there's a way for companies to interact on a very fine level of detail with their customers and offer them a better service. Because one of the things, obviously, when one uh, when one is insuring, is you want peace of mind. So, on on the customer side, the um, the the person's peace of mind can be improved, while on the insurer's side, their risk can be covered better using something like a dynamic premium allocation. Um, and I, I believe that this is very much a possibility and um, with a large, with the vast amounts of you know CCTV camera footage and AI inputs, and our ability to do things like this at, at immense scale, um, I'm seeing um, much more improved risk modeling happening in in the large scale uh, mass middle market. So I think that's where uh, machine learning and data science can help there. It's very cool. Yeah, I think what you just mentioned have a have a huge um, social impact, right? Because um, yeah personal lending obviously like like people with like no credit history or you know people coming from say underrepresented background probably gonna be be biased towards you know uh, whether the, they they keep uh, they be given the lending or not and so by using some of the advanced technology in machine learning and in the designs you can identify like better signals right Be- better features that in order to 
to capitalize yeah. uh, those value and obviously yeah. yeah great great points yeah um, can raise the signal of of underrepresented and even uh, folks biased against can raise their signal in in the data sets um, and also mitigate uh, against um, uh, bias and also um, yeah prove to be more ethical mm -hmm. if if one tunes the model to to look uh, to, to be effective without um, some of the previously biased factors like um, uh, if a company wishes to commit to removing gender in their personal lending space can they have viable models when they reject gender out of their um, model assessment, mm -hmm. and would that would that be a benefit to their customer base? I'm I'm pretty sure that uh, given the, the the current climate and the fact that um, things like the gender pay gap and the Me Too movement and all sorts of problems in terms of uh, how our social frameworks are discriminatory, how we can um, work to remove those discriminatory um, biases in in our machine learning models. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about your current job as a data scientist at IO Holdings. So it is yes. an organization that serves over 2.5 million customers in South Africa who purchase medical and life insurance uh, on uh, cellular networks. So could you mind going over the work you've been doing since you uh, started at IO uh, Holdings? Oh, um, yes. And uh, just a correction there, the, the, the client base is in Uganda and Ghana at the moment. Oh, okay. uh, South African deployments are planned. So, yes, um, as, I, as I arrived, um, and the, the, the environment is proving to be very beneficial. Um, and, and one of the things to look for is a, 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 an enthusiasm to adopt the tool sets and resources that allow us to do our work. And as I said, I'm working in Azure on Databricks. And one of the things I found out quite early is that um, even though some of the aspects of the work are a large financial services corporate base, the, um, the capabilities are excellent for deploying into the cloud. And so I was able to set things up in Databricks reasonably soon. Um, and then the other thing was we have good data. So in some areas we have great data, in other words, others not so much. But I think that's, that's pretty much the same in most environments. Um, and so what I did was initially working with the sales and marketing folks. Um, I set up a small model um, and built it in SKLearn. And I tried a number of ensemble techniques. And um, what I do is I use the logistic regression as my baseline model because it's very, very quick to generate. And I can, I can do optimization on it re reasonably fast. So um, a, a baseline model in, in logistic regression uh, can happen quite quickly and I can know very fast whether or not the data set is viable and then I move on. So I did that and um, I got a, just over 80% accuracy on uh, AUC and didn't go into any calibrations or anything at this point and did all the, uh, I, I added a few extra um, um, ensembles and so on and then I used the uh, Python uh, teapot library to um, run optimization searches and again it's compute, like Dask, computationally very intensive so, like in an extent, beg your pardon, very computationally extensive. So it took a while, um, and I found a few um, uh, optimal uh, models uh, from that um, in the ensemble space and using all uh, other things like maybe an SVM would be better and so on. And um, the logistic regression calibrated quite well, in fact, best of them. And I did an out-of-time test just to check on whether or not the model would look ahead well and generalize well. Um, and the logistic regression was was the better performer there, um, and I think there are a number of reasons for that, and and some of the blame can be laid at my door um, for not thoroughly 
setting up the other models to succeed. Um, it was a very constrained time frame. I did this in about two weeks. And we deployed the model, which was to build a product uh, propensity, uh, likelihood to, to purchase a product. Um, and it was used to rank uh, sales leads. And we went from a 1% response rate to a 3% response rate. So I made a, a bit of an impact. It's a massive impact, but a small effect. <laughs> so, um, that, that was still something I'm reasonably proud of. Um, done very fast as just a means to see what, what we could do in the environment. And that's uh, subsequently um, moved into running very large transaction logs through um, PySpark so that we can get a, a descriptive analytics feel for what's going on on the ground, which we hadn't been able to do so before. So my, my work is quite a, quite a mix of both the predictive and the data engineering side of things. And then I have a team of four working for me whose responsibility is very much to consume the data that I'm generating and um, build uh, report dashboards uh, from those for, for the uh, executives. So that's the work I'm busy doing there. Um, and then in the pipeline is coming all sorts of um, models to predict likelihood, likelihoods to claim and things like that. I see. Um, so reflecting on your career thus far, um, how do you think your aeronautical engineering degree that you got 25 years ago has been beneficial? It, it's, it's been extremely beneficial in giving me sort of the questioning tools, um, the curiosity, I, I think, is which is vital for a um, data scientist. That was there with me before. Maybe it was part of me wanting to be an engineer in the first place. I couldn't really say. But curiosity and having fun with that curiosity is part of it. And aeronautical engineering was because I've been curious about aero engineering since I was three or four years old. So um, I was able to keep um, a playful curiosity through my college, which maybe I wouldn't have gotten if I'd done a social science or um, psychology or bioinformatics or pure mathematical statistics course. I was able to you know, follow my dream, as it were, and that's helped. Um, as I said earlier, the, the ability to set up an experiment and work with it in a design mind space has been remarkably valuable. Um, and that's not just an engineering, uh, an engineering skill set. Um, those kinds of things are in writing. They're in um, mathematics. Um, they're in most of the STEM fields, but you also get them in odd places like um, movie directors and theatre producers. So it doesn't prevent anyone from becoming a data scientist if you don't have an engineering background, but um, places where you do design mm -hmm. and engineering definitely did that um, are beneficial. Um, the maths have been very helpful. Um, also, I picked up a, um, what's interesting in engineering is the whole, the whole sort of purpose of engineering is to, is using models of the real world um, inform your design process using the models in as um, rigorous and a data-driven way as you can in order to produce things, entities in the real world that are viable. Um, and of course, air aircraft are a classic case um, where um, we need to know quite a lot of uh, mathematical and rigorous modeling techniques in order to generate um, understanding of and the ability to design workable systems like um, airflow through an engine or over a particular wing and so on. So um, my ability to think in models, I suppose you could call it, was, was very effective. 
of course, now being an aeronautical engineer, um, machine learning and AI um, are using are, are taking over from many of the design tasks. Mm-hmm. I was kind of I was kind of disappointed and sad to learn that um, Boom, uh, the company building the new supersonic airliner, used genetic algorithms to design the um, aerofoil for their wing. Yeah. So AI slash ML is being used to do my job. But um, yeah, um, that, that was an interesting one to me. Um, and, and maybe at a later point, we can talk about um, how the very tools that we use are automating a lot of our work out of what we need to do. But yeah, yeah um, the, uh, the curiosity, the, uh, the design, uh, mathematical stuff, um, and the exposure to modeling and experimentation has been very valuable absolutely i saw that you you have worked on like those companies with a big social impact in south africa right from from uh, personal lending to medical and i'm sure and so uh, you like my first guest from south africa so how oh. would you describe the tech and data company uh, the uh, tech and data community um, in your country Um, it's really, really starting to ramp up. Um, in the, my previous sort of life as a software architect, middleware integrator, that kind of thing, I've worked for three of the four big banks here in South Africa, so the big fintech corporates, and they're desperate to innovate and have an entrepreneurial mindset and have things designed. And what they're finding is they just they absolutely can't. Um, the, 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 the structures are just not set up for that. So um, I worked briefly at one of the tech incubators, and um, there is no shortage of talent or skill, um, though there are some recently more worrying issues with uh, reading comprehension and those kinds of abilities. Um, but there's, there's a, um, a vast amount of youngsters coming out of, out of uh, high school who are not getting into university colleges, but I believe are quite capable of holding their own as data scientists, um, given the tools that we have and given... Um, Uh, just a, a short time to link the concepts that they understand with the technology that they uh, are able to use. Um, so there's quite a challenge in um, sort of tertiary education level that's not college level. So that's challenging for us. Um, but um, I've got four young uh, graduate data scientists who did a one-year course um, with some exposure to AWS and a couple of other uh, tech giants who are proving quite capable of holding their own in, in uh, building reports. Mm-hmm. So um, that's, that's remarkable. Um, there's, there's a very strong push, just like anywhere in the world, for folks to you know, do better for themselves and get good jobs and uh, uh, support a family and you know, have a career and a life. Um, and that's very strong here. Um, the inequality is a problem um, because often um, entrepreneurs tend to be Uh, folk who have a good uh, support network, and I'm talking financial as well as um, mentorship and skills and education. So things like uh, being able to stay at home for six months while you build a company with your four high school friends isn't really possible for most of South Africa's high school graduates who have to go out immediately and find uh, you know, entry-level jobs. So that's an issue. Um, so we, we've got we've got most of the, the building blocks and the ingredients to make a absolutely delicious sparkling cake but um, we just don't have um, the sort of we don't have those resources for enough of our youngsters 
Um, there's some remarkably good things being done. Um, EC2 was written in South Africa. I don't know if you're aware of that. The Amazon Elastic Cloud was actually built, written in, in, in the South African office. Um, we've got a large number of cloud providers uh, setting up. Um, interestingly enough, while I was working at Direct Access, Nextdoor is one of the major data centers uh, southern in the Southern Hemisphere was completed. Mm -hmm. um, the big banks are really looking, looking at big markets here. And we've got a, um, a, a potentially booming middle class. Uh, at the moment, the economy is not growing very well. So we, we, we don't quite have the markets to drive some of the new tech stuff. Um, but that said, um, throughout Africa, and here I am at IO Holdings, case in point, a South African-based company is leapfrogging up into um, the wonderful African countries. And we're finding all sorts of the most remarkable things uh, happening. Um, the uh, populations of Uganda and Ghana are different and unique in so many beautiful ways that make um, tech products even more compelling. Um, where the the social uh, networks and the family networks are much more uh, concrete and established, um, and it's proving to to make the technical the technical products stick and have this huge uptake. Um, Kenya had um, a uh, e wallet that has proved to be remarkable. I think there's seventy percent penetration in the Kenyan market for an e wallet. Um, I think it was uh, I think it was from uh, Nedbank. So South Africa is poised to to deliver all sorts of wonderful and new um, burgeoning markets, tech spaces, uh, and um, sort of tech communities that I'm very excited to see happen. So Tristan, at this point of our conversation, I want to move on to the last segment of our interview. In which I'm going to give you uh, three uh, quickfire questions, and so you can just yeah. keep tactical advice and 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 resource for people who are seeking it. Okay. Um, the first question is that what are the companies which are doing exceptional data science work that you admire? Uh, in South Africa here right now, it's oddly enough a very large corporate in the healthcare sector. They're mm -hmm. called Discovery Health. Mm -hmm. um, and they were the first to um, offer all sorts of incentives via fitness tracking to um, reduce the um, hospitalization and uh, medical bill burden that they would carry for if, if they were underwriting an unhealthy bunch of customers. So one of the ways they've done that is they what they do what I call closing the loop, where they said, okay, um, instead of us just you know dealing with a claim of someone who has cancer at age 60, what are some of the ways we can help prevent the cancer in the first place? And so what they do is right across the board, they have a, a proper real and working reward system where you can get cash, overseas trips, movies, devices, travel, all sorts of things out of your reward structure. And um, they, um, they they layer it using rewards points based on your exercise levels, your um, frequency of getting medical checkups, your the way you eat, uh, the way you drive, and so on and so on. So um, they, I think they're doing a pretty pretty good job using predictive analytics to close the loop and uh, enhance the lives, the lives of their customers. I see. The second question is that, what is one book that you would recommend for people who want to develop a better analytical mindset? I'll go back to Predictive Analytics by Eric Siegel again. Um, awesome. It's, 
he ties things together really well. So he has the best explanation of the difference between um, bias and variance that I've seen. Um, and then he talks about things like communications uplift, and he he he, he backs it up with case studies. And his narrative is amazing. Uh, I, I I can't recommend it highly enough. It's a great book, Predictive Analytics by Dr. Eric Siegel. And no, I'm not paid. I'm not paid to recommend his book. And the last question is that: Imagine that you can send out a tweet to all the aspiring data scientists on Twitter. What could you tweet about? Um, I've actually written the tweet. Do things rather than study or take a course. Do those things, yes, but do coding work. Code up tutorials. Make a submission on Kaggle. Find problems to solve. And then ask questions of data scientists. There's the tweet. Brilliant. Uh, that's, a, that's a great call to action uh, message. That um, does kind of sum up our conversation. So I really enjoy learning about your, your experience as an engineer, uh, your transition into data science as well as, you know, very... Um, insightful um, advice and, and, and practical knowledge from data engineering to doing predictive analytics to you know applying uh, machine learning to social impact uh, in your home country South Africa and uh, I'll be sure to include all those uh, information into the show notes so people can have a chance to, to look at them and reach out if they have any question uh, so yeah thanks Absolutely. a lot Tristan yeah that'd be great James, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for your excellent questions. I really enjoyed answering them. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website jameskelly.com It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.